It took a lot of collaboration between the pharmaceutical industry and the government to get COVID-19 vaccines developed and proven safe. It might have been one of the biggest and fastest medical efforts ever. At the center of it all was my next guest. He's the director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research and a finalist in this year's Service to America medals, Dr. Peter Marks. Dr. Marks, good to have you on. Thanks. Nice to be here. So tell us exactly what you did here. The citation says that you brought together otherwise competing companies to collaborate in this development of the vaccine. So I guess there's a development piece and then there's testing and certifying it as safe phase. So tell us what happened. So at the beginning of the pandemic, the the conventional wisdom was that it might take until uh, calendar year 2022 to have a vaccine uh, against COVID-19. And obviously, as uh, wiser people than I am said, uh, uh, we might not even necessarily have one by then. And so the, the goal was to try to bring things together to try to get a vaccine long before then, hopefully, at the time, by the end of 2020, if not uh, early 2021, we worked with a variety of pharmaceutical companies who collaborated in various ways. Many were pursuing their own development, but also sharing knowledge about the virus and then trying to find pathways that would uh, move this forward as fast as we could through the large clinical trials that would be necessary to show that the vaccines were safe and effective. The other piece of this that was very critical was while these clinical trials were going on, um, the various manufacturers were scaling up their production of vaccine at risk, which is something we don't usually do. But in this case, the idea was better to have vaccine ready when the clinical trials were done to be deployed if the trials were positive. And if they weren't, you could always dump them. But in the case of a pandemic where we were pretty sure that there would be a desperate need for vaccines in fall to winter 2020, to have those on hand was very important. And so things proceeded in parallel, the large clinical trials and the manufacturing scale up. At the end, we then use a pathway available to us after the terrorist attacks of 9-11, the emergency use authorization pathway, which is a regulatory pathway, which makes it possible for us to make available product without our normal licensure process in terms of vaccines when there's a public health emergency. And that's that combination of speeding up clinical trials, manufacturing at risk and using this access pathway called emergency use authorization is what managed to get a vaccine from laboratory into people's arms in less than a year. Yeah, so it really was lightning speed or warp speed, I guess, was the name of the development program. It sounds like you were the bridge, though, between the development of the vaccine itself by the companies and the regulatory requirements, as you say, the emergency regulatory pathway, because that's FDA takes over at some point from, from the development stage. Is that a fair way to describe the process? Yeah, we help facilitate this. I think we have a wonderful team. I, I'd say I'm kind of like the orchestra leader who helped uh, make sure our team uh, was working together uh, in collaboration with other uh, government partners and with private industry to make sure that we were all moving in a harmonious manner to get to this particular goal at the end of the day, which was so important. Sounds like more of a overlaid set of requirements and procedures rather than a compressed one. I mean, it was fast, but a lot of things were happening simultaneously. You just articulated that beautifully because exactly right. And I think this is what's so important for people to understand that really no corners were cut 
in developing these vaccines, people are worried, oh, was it a rush process? Did we miss doing stuff? No, it was not something where corners were cut. It was something that we just took out unnecessary time delays and we proceeded in parallel rather than in serial in order to get there with really data that we would use for efficacy that's very much like the data that we would use for efficacy for our standard licensed vaccines. And in terms of the safety data, we had the critical safety data that we needed from the first roughly uh, average of or median of two months after people were received the vaccines. And that's when most of the adverse events are seen. And we also put in place a, a very robust safety follow-up system. So really no corners cut. And, and so you're, you said it exactly right. This, is, uh, this was not by uh, missing steps. It was by catching all the steps and essentially stacking them uh, on top of each other to get them done timely. We're speaking with Dr. Peter Marks. He's the director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And during all of this, given all of the national uproar and the publicity, did it occur to you at times that in some ways the entire credibility of the government and its regulatory system was on the line here? It actually did, and it weighs heavily because we know that vaccine confidence is absolutely critical when one is developing a vaccine. A vaccine does not stop a pandemic. Vaccination of people does. And so without maintaining uh, the confidence in people in the process, we knew that we would not be successful. And that's why the buzzword transparency, which in this case is a very appropriate word, an open process in how we did this, so that people could see that corners were not cut, so that people could see that what needed to happen happened. That was very important because we wanted to make sure that people would feel comfortable in getting vaccinated. And we know that there is a fair amount of vaccine hesitancy in our country. We're dealing with it right now. And the hope is by having an open process, by being willing to answer questions, address vaccine hesitancy head on, that people will come around to realizing how critically important getting vaccinated is to public health, but also to our national security. Because if we have additional waves of COVID-19 come across the country, it will adversely affect our economies and our ability to function both in terms of school, jobs, et cetera. So I really do feel that weight of the world or weight of the country in terms of the need to get this right so that people have confidence in our vaccines. And what was it like day to day? Because I've heard from other federal officials in other domains that for a period, it was almost a 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week type of process for them. What was it like for you? Uh, I think they described it pretty well. There were weeks when um, I tend to be an early riser. I kind of had the 4 a.m. to 6 to 8 p.m. shift. Then others kind of came on a little later. There probably were about two hours a day, probably between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. when things were pretty quiet. But otherwise, things went pretty well round the clock. And they did go seven days a week, including holidays during the busiest period of this process. And, and for that matter, they continue to be very busy because now that we have three emergency use authorized vaccines, we're in the process of seeing those transition into expanding those who can receive the vaccines into younger individuals, as well as potentially transitioning into biologic license applications so that they'll have 
will have actually approved vaccines, and that's keeping us uh, quite busy. So things have perhaps lightened up slightly, but we're still staying nicely busy. And you have two Ds, a PhD and an MD. Which of your professional muscles were strained the most here? <laughs> uh Oh, the, the, I would say, I, I, you know, it, it's hard to it's hard to make divisions here, but they both came into I, I'd like to be politically correct and say they were equally they were <laughs> equally useful. The MD for the clinical knowledge of having to deal with the issues that came up with COVID, the various how we would have to deal with the various uh, syndromes that were coming up and address the medical aspects of getting to immunity in individuals. And the PhD portions for understanding everything from the protein chemistry and the virology that went into some of the vaccines to the manufacturing processes and the immune response triggered by the vaccine. So these both came in handy during this pandemic response. All right. So a full body workout and one you probably hope you don't have to repeat. I I would mind if it wasn't uh, more than another hundred years until the next time we have to do this. (laughs) All right. Dr. Peter Marks is the director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, and he's a finalist in this year's Service to America medals. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me today. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff To Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, he worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt 
but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy, and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, 
It's in an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick? Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.